Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Changing the Game with Industry 4.0 in the Intelligent Enterprise, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. You'll hear from the experts who know how to digitize and renew business models for better results in manufacturing businesses. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Bonnie in the house. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game changers, you already know this is the place where the best run. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from Kristen Masters, who wrote a couple of years ago on blog.flexis, F-L-E-X-I-S.com. She said the following, today, most automotive manufacturers and suppliers have willingly started down the road to industry 4.0. And the route, or route as you might say, is leading them to greater profitability. According to Automotive World, sensors in the supply chain have been instrumental. But but, but the evolution toward Industry 4.0 presents some key challenges that automotive manufacturers must overcome if they wish to remain competitive. So that sounds like optimism. It sounds like some challenges. It sounds like words of warning. So here's the scoop of what we're going to be talking about today. Industrial and automotive manufacturers have been investing in Industry 4.0 technologies for about a decade. So you can calculate that backwards. They're looking for its promises of significant improvements in what everybody wants, productivity, better quality, more personalization. We know that's what consumers want and flexibility, but many of them have yet to realize that full potential. There are many reasons why not. Maybe they're stuck on small projects. Maybe they're hyper-focusing on proofs of concept and they're not able to get off that launch pad. And maybe, even more maybe, they're having trouble managing and leveraging the data. Data, data, and more data. I have a panel of three experts today who are going to discuss whether, listen up, the COVID-19 business disruption that we're starting to come out of will be the catalyst for these manufacturers to reassess their Industry 4.0 projects, to scale and leverage that wonderful data with all of its potential, and become intelligent manufacturers as they restart and reimagine their businesses. Today, I'm going to be joined by Joe Barkai, Industry Analyst, Georg Kuba, I still have to look at for now, Georg Kuba from SAP and Hendrik Newman, and we will get started right now. So welcome, everyone. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here. We are doing this show on Zoom, which is wonderful because I can see my panelists. I'm looking at their smiling faces. Joe, you can smile now. It's okay. There he goes. <laughs> Joe cracked a smile. And we're, we're going to be, you'll hear a little more energy in the show because we can actually see and respond to each other visually. So Joe Barkai, you're up first. Joe, please, in case there's somebody out there, there's a remote possibility somebody doesn't know who you are, Joe Barkai. Just remote for that one person in the world. Please tell them what you, are, what you do, who you are, and what, what is your quick overview on this topic? Joe, go ahead. So I'm an industry analyst. I help companies understand Industries and technology. I have company. I help companies understand technologies. Trying to look at global trends, uh, look at micro trends, and understand where industries are moving forward. So I look at technologies. I look at the intersection of business technologies and help companies figure out how to prepare for technologies, how to adopt technologies, how to assess the future value of technology. On top of that, I write on technology topics. I wrote a book on the Internet of Things. So I'm trying to kind of come together from different angles and, again, understand the role of of technology and business in shaping our future. Um, So specifically to the um, 
to the COVID-19 crisis, my question is, is it indeed a catalyst, as you suggest, Bonnie, or perhaps are we going to forget very quickly and go back to the bad old days, if you will? Just a reminder, this is not the first crisis, global crisis that affected supply chains. I mean, we all remember the uh, earthquake and tsunami of 2011, and supply chains, specifically in automotive, were totally shut down. And we look at the issues, we understood how fragile our supply chains were. We understood the impact, uh, the, the negative impact of overleaning supply chains. And here we are again with the same kind of problem. So this is where I you know, focus my thinking today. Thank you. Joe, you said you're not surprised about disruption. It's happened before. Do you think that industrial manufacturers, automotive in particular now, do you think they, they learn those lessons? Or as you say, they go back to the way things always were? Yeah, it's one of those yes and no. Um, in this case specifically, I think that the personal impact of COVID-19 will affect people. So we, we will probably have longer term memory uh, and think about it both in terms of business as well as um, corporate life. Um, but the reality is those changes are very, very difficult. So it's one thing to realize how fragile supply chains were. Uh, it's a different thing to go back and almost undo many of the practices. And it's perhaps not undoing as much as reaching a new balance. We were completely going over, you know, overly leaning supply chains. Uh, minimum inventories, minimum movement, everything was just in time. And we realized that just-in-time is effective, is efficient, but also very fragile. So to me, going forward, it'll be some sort of a new balance, a new rethinking of the models. Um, maybe stepping one step back, stepping back a little bit, um, part of this overlaying was a result of globalization because we have global manufacturing, global markets, and we wanted to create networks of global operations, which, again, were wasteful, therefore we overlaying them. I'm not suggesting that the crisis will take us back and everything is going to be now uh, vertical integration and local manufacturing. No, I hope not, because globalization at the end is good. But we will have to reach a new balance between globalization and kind of smart regionalization, if you will. Just one thought about will we learn. You know, studies when we talked about how uh, executives learn and how they take responsibility when things happen, it's an interesting human trait place of executives. When things go bad, like supply chain disruption, they blame, they tend to blame natural disaster, things outside of their control. It's really not them, it's someone else outside of their control. Whereas if, when they're successful, they take ownership. It's our skills, our knowledge, our you know, hard work, and so on. And I think this human trait will kind of lower the impact because again, it'll be attributed to outside forces and therefore we should not really, we're not responsible and we're not gonna take action. Thank you, Joe. Great introduction to our topic, and I appreciate your POV. Anybody doesn't know alphabet soup, that's point of view. Thank you. Let's go around the panel now. Georg Kuba, I think I have it right. Georg, welcome. You and I haven't spoken in a long time. Please introduce yourself to our audience, and what's your POV on this topic? What do you think? So, well, thank you very much, uh, Bonnie, and I have to say I just had a broken connection, so I hope I didn't miss any of the really interesting stuff, but you know, basically I'm running the automotive industry at SAP on a global basis, and I get to talk with all the automotive companies around the world. And the, the situation that we're seeing right now is obviously very disrupting and very disturbing, but um, on second thought, and once we get through the first 10 minutes of you know, just commiserating how bad everything is, 
I get a huge agreement on the fact that uh, the crisis is more of an accelerator than a disruptor because driving digitalization in processes and the way people work and the way uh, products are being built has been something that was going on for a while. It just didn't go very fast. And um, now we have a very, very compelling event that uh, drives companies to, to go fast. And I will just use PSA as an example who just announced uh, some, some weeks ago, you probably heard that, that even after the COVID crisis, they will keep their 85,000 office workers at home. Mm -hmm. And they will have to actually make an argument why they want to come into the office rather than make an argument for the opposite. And you could say, well, that's not very automotive specific, and that's true, but it does show how things have been kind of, you know, penting up for a while are now breaking through. And um, so I'm, I'm looking at this as a, as a big accelerator, and I certainly agree with Joe on the supply chain aspect. Um, but also there, we have been seeing signs that, um, you know, people were putting not only manufacturing, but also sourcing and also design to where the markets are, because the, the requirements are much, much more local, the tastes are more local, and it's really hard to serve this from a global, from a global perspective. So in summary, our perspective is we've seen the automotive industry struggle between manufacturing cars and just selling mobility. That's the big, big conundrum that's going on. That is not going away. And the COVID-19 crisis is an accelerator in many areas. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Gayo. A good overview also. And, and you were talking about uh, keeping mm -hmm. 85,000 employees remote after the COVID, if it ever does go away. Pe what people call the new normal, the next normal, I call it the new abnormal. Uh, mm. In my introduction, I talked about intelligent manufacturers restarting and reimagining their businesses. And this could speak to the issue of reimagining, not necessarily the business, but how we do our business which could be very different. Thank you. Can't wait to get, uh, let's get our third panelist in also, Hendrik Newman. Welcome. We'd love to hear about you. Who are you? What do you do? And what's your take on the topic? Hello, everybody. My name is Hendrik. I'm calling in from Hanover, Germany. Uh, Hanover might be known for the exposition. There's a big industrial fair normally in March. This year, of course, not because of the pandemic. Um, my background is economics and I have a degree in international management. I work since 15 years for Continental. Uh, Continental might be known for its tires, but we make a lot more automotive components and with 44 billion sales, it's one of the largest automotive suppliers. Uh, the unit where I work, we produce air springs um, and uh, I manage a global rollout of SAP ME. Just give you a small insight, air springs, what, is, what they're used for. Uh, they're used for damping purpose of, of vehicles, machine and trains. And uh, just a word to SAP ME, it's uh, manufacturing execution software, and we use it for digitizing our shop floor. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's who I am, what I'm doing. So bottom line, I'm in production and digitizing the workshop. And uh, I just agree to, to the former, to Joe and to Georg, I think um, the pandemic will speed up the need for digitalization because people do not have access from home to certain information if the process is not digitized. So if they're sitting at home, they cannot see what's on the machine. They cannot see what's going on in the plant. And I think it's a very big topic to digitize these key figures and to have them always on. And in our implementation, for example, uh, we every second, the main key figures are updated. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting at home or sitting in the plant. 
Thank you very much. Good go around. I think that's what my three panelists were looking forward to was a good exchanging of ideas and insights. And we've already had that at the top of the show. So thank you all for that. Now it's the, by the way, I have to do a shout out. Richard Howells is with us silently on the Zoom call. Richard is the sponsor of this series, Industry 4.0. And we also have to do a shout out of appreciation to Judy Cubis, who is the sponsor of our series on mobility and manufacturing, formerly known as the Future of Cars with Game Changers. And Judy helped to put this panel together. So thank you to Judy. She's probably asleep somewhere on the West Coast. It is early out there. So now it's the time of the show where each of my panelists has sent me a very interesting and in some cases very provocative quote that on the surface has nothing to do with our topic. And I'm going to read the quote with a little background and ask them to explain how they picked it and what it has to do with our topic. So first up, Joe Barkaya sent us a quote that is debatable where it came from. Some people say Winston Churchill. Some people say all kinds of people said it. Uh, Rahm Emanuel is supposed to have said it recently, but it goes back, it looks like it goes back to uh, a doctor named M. F. Myron F. Weiner, or Weiner, MD, a geriatric psychiatrist. I'll just leave it there. And the quote is very interesting. Everybody listen up because you may want to put this somewhere in your back pocket and use it to sound really smart at a conference somewhere, right, Joe, or on Twitter. The quote is, never let a good crisis go to waste. Joe, oh my, what a great quote. At this point, I don't care where it came from. I love it. So Joe, had, had, apply this to our topic, please. What kind of crisis are we talking about? Well, any crisis, I think, causes us to kind of rethink our, our assumptions, rethink our beliefs. Um, it also kind of gives us um, an excuse or, or a permission license to do something different. So stuff that used to be made perhaps stuck in, in bureaucracy or had red tape or we just don't do it this way, it's gone away because of the level of urgency. Applying this to today, I think that the awareness, and we just discussed this a little bit earlier, the awareness to the fragility of the supply chain caused by this pandemic, but also, again, going back to 2011, going back to other crises, forced us to rethink our models, rethink our base assumptions. And unlike in the kind of normal days, where in order to cause change, we need to go through the process and ask permission and so on and so forth. Now we are allowed, as it were, to really take action. And the action is to address the immediate needs. And um, Hendrik just mentioned issues around uh, people working from home. If you suggested that Continental or any other company like this size that most people will work from home, they will have all the excuses in the world to say why we cannot do that. Because of privacy, because of con connectivity, because of people will just be lazy and not work. And now we're realizing actually we have to do it. And by the way, it's really not that bad. People who work hard or work okay will do the same from home. People who slack will slack at, at, at work as well. So this is an opportunity for us to rethink our processes and rebuild them. But I often, when I talk about this, I really ask this as a question, will it be a catalyst? Will the coronavirus crisis will be a catalyst or will we go back uh, to our, our bad ways? So this is why I, I like this quotation. And, and yes, it does go back to a Machiavellian thinking perhaps, yes. uh, but we're gonna use it in a very positive way, I, I hope. Thank you, Joe. Really appreciate that. Love the quote. Let's move on to Georg Kuba, who sent us a quote from Stephen Covey. 
Stephen Richards Covey and my Zoom has just, let me see, here we go. Word plays face games with me now. It's supposed to be at 143% so I can read my notes and it goes up to 200% and blows it off the screen. So forgive me here. The quote is from Stephen Covey. Stephen Richards Covey lived from 1932 to 2012, an American educator, author, businessman, and keynote speaker. Most of you will know him by his most famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He also wrote principle-centered leadership, the seven habits of highly effective families, the eighth habit, the leader in me, and on and on and on. But the first, the self-help book he wrote in 1994 is the title of the quote Georg has selected. And it's three words. We love short quotes, by the way, Georg. And this one is first things first. Georg, talk to me. How'd you pick this one? Well, this is a quote that actually has been helping me through my professional life almost over the whole time because we're all inundated with stuff that comes thrown at us all the time. And it is, you know, if you do everything, you do nothing. And so this is why this is so important for me. I, I say it to myself probably a couple of times a day when I get lost in the, in the weeds of the email. But I think it is also very relevant for, for the industry photo zero situation because um, I, I believe, and Bonnie, you have been alluding to this in your opening statements, that some companies are trying to do too much and they're looking at the technology and they're looking at the processes and they're looking at this and this and this and they don't see what is the first thing, what is the main thing, and that is to improve your business. So I, I think when things become complicated and certainly Industry 4.0 is becoming complicated, it's always very important to refer back to what we're really doing here, what is really the main thing, and that means first things first. Interesting, Georg. Do you think that management, we're talking about leadership on many of these shows. Of course, we're talking about technology and strategy, mm. but it comes down to people, doesn't it? Do you think this is a lesson that a lot of leadership might be overwhelmed right now? Oh my goodness, how do we keep going? How do we restart our business? What do we do with our people? How is our supply chain going to work? But that first thing first, is that like asking somebody, what is your why in life? Or what is your, what is your yeah. yes in life? What is that first <laughs> thing? Do you think it's hard to get leadership to really, really focus on first things first? There's so yeah, many I think we're reading things. the same books here. Like you, you're quoting John Strzelecki here, right? <laughs> so it, I, I think that's what it is, right? You know, be aware of what you're trying to achieve. Don't get distracted by all the side aspects of it. And then make that first thing, the thing that you do in the morning, during lunchtime and in the afternoon. And, and then when you're done with it, then you can do the other things, right, Joe? Joe wants to comment. Joe? Yeah, yeah. I, so does Henry. I, I totally agree with, with Georg's point of view and, and your reflection, Bonnie. At the same time, it's sometimes hard to say, okay, I understand I need to focus on this first thing, but what is it? How do I find it? How do I decide between the two? And one method or one think, way of thinking I've been using in the past, specifically in the context of the Internet of Things, is what is the outcome and who benefits from the outcome. Yeah. This is why my book, and this is not promotion of the book, is called The Outcome Economy, because the way to think about any action or lack thereof is what in the outcome, not only outcome on me and my job, but also on other parts of the supply chain. What is the impact of the decision I'm making on downstream? And then it goes back to the theme that we will come back, I'm sure, again and again. It's about data. Do I have the data to make the right decision? Do I have the data to understand the impact, the outcome of my decision? Do I have enough information, whether it's uh, discrete manufacturing or simulation information, to understand the outcome downstream, parts that I don't know about, but they are relevant? And this is, I think, the, the way 
this is the way I like to think about how to make how we make decisions. Thank you, Hendrik. Talk just, to me. <laughs> yeah, just one thing to add. You need to get started. I mean, you can wait yeah. and discuss and make proof of concept and rethink it. And you need to make sure where you want to start and then you need to get started. And in the project where I work it is in the last four years, we have seen so many new stuff and we could not imagine that this would be developed in the future. So you never, you never know what is coming up in, in Industry 4.0. So you need to get started, see what's coming out, and then you need to adapt your, uh, your, uh, your project. And then you need to go on, but you need to get started. Need to get started. First things first. Thank you very much. Hendrik, you are up next. You have sent me one of my favorite quotes in the whole wide world. I quote it even when my panelists don't. I used it on a show about Industry 4.0 last week. Hendrik said to me, I, I mentioned the quote. And he said, can I use it? Can I use it? Because he had already suggested it. I said, yes. The quote is from Warren G. Bennis. I discovered G stands for Gamaliel. Warren Gamaliel Bennis, 1925 to 2014, an American scholar, organizational consultant, and author. He was a pioneer in the contemporary field of leadership studies. And here is the quote. I think uh, Joe and Georg are going to be smiling about this one. Here we go. The factory of the future will have only two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog. The dog will be there to keep the man from touching. And I'm going to insert the word dam, the dam equipment. So <laughs> Hendrik at Continental, talk to me. How did you find this one? <laughs> so, so, so I, I love that. Yeah I, I read this, yeah, I read the quote on a magazine and I could not stop laughing. <laughs> and then when I, when I finished laughing, I said, okay, but there's also something serious about the quote. And uh, the first thing is, uh, it can well, it shows that where industry 4.0 can bring us. So it shows the road. There's a person and a dog sitting in a plant alone and everything is run by its own. So there's a clear goal where it could lead us. And the second, it also shows that what we, if we see the current point, what we need to do. So there's an immense change, a change process from today, from today's point of manufacturing to sitting a man and a dog and watching products produced. And it also shows us what kind of resources we need, especially in existing manufacturing environment and in existing plants, you have very high investments to get to industry 4.0. And I think all this together is in this short quote. And that's the reason why, why I like it so much. Thank you. Well, it's nice to have a quote that makes everybody smile. Georg was laughing. Very I like it. It's great. Isn't that beautiful? I was in the middle of a show about Industry 4.0 two weeks ago, and I was Googling that quote to make sure I had it right, and I read it on the air, and everybody cracked up. So uh, you may be the first one to actually bring it as a quote to a show, Hendrik, and I'm, I'm okay. very happy to have you do that. Now we're at the part of the show where all my panelists have sent me statements in advance about what they want to discuss in our, our formal roundtable, but we have very much been going around the table. So Joe Barkai, I'm looking at statement number two because I think we've covered number Number one, number one, you talk about coronavirus has exposed weaknesses in the global supply chain. So I'd like to go to number two. You say we are in the era of IoT, Internet of Things and big data. These are not merely technologies. Digitalization is a strategy. Joe, why don't you take about two minutes, expand this, and then we'll go around the table and see what Georg and Hendrik have to say. Joe? Yeah, uh, of course. And in a way, we already started this conversation earlier. So yes, it, we are, whether it's part of the industry 4.0 strategy or just in general, in the, we're in the era of 
in which everybody and everything is connected. So machines are connected, uh, factories are connected, assembly lines are connected, but only not only machinery, but also humans are connected through conferences like this, through social media, everything and everybody is connected. And I think this is the era when we start thinking about the role of connectivity and the role of data. But kind of tangentially related to some comments that both Hendrik and, and Georg made, it's really not about the connectivity. I like to think about connectivity as being, in a way, a solved problem. So connectivity, as well as data security, I want to look at those as effect of life. Of course, we're not there yet, but that's the thinking. Now, the question is, what can we do? What can we gain when everybody is, connect is connected? In the context of manufacturing, it really means that every decision maker, whether she's a machine operator on the floor or she's an executive, where he's at, where he, whether he's in the office or at home, they, at any point in time, they have complete error-free up to the context for making the best, the best decisions. And as we said earlier, now they have the tools to understand the impact of their decisions, the outcome of their decision on their entire supply chain. Take this one step further, we can make this kind of thinking process not reactive to events, not reactive to a crisis, not even reactive to low inventory, but rather we should develop better tools to create simulations and kind of what-if scenarios. So I can be prepared, you know, borrowing from game theory and borrowing from military exercises, we can create different scenarios and say, what happens if there is a tsunami? What happens if there's a low inventory? What happens if there's geopolitical up oppressed? What even if the market changes on us? Do we have the tools and the context, the full context, to understand the long-term impact? So for this reason, I worry less about the digitalization part of it. For that reason, I don't really not, not don't care is a strong statement, but I really don't care about instrumentation of, of factories. On a side note, I think that one reason why Industry 4.0 seems to be late, seems to always be in the future, is because we focus too much on the instrumentation of existing manufacturing lines. Manufacturing industry is very, very slow to change. Part of it is culture, but huge part of it is because it's working, there are working lines, there are old machineries, it's just, it's just a very difficult process to instrument and automate. I really want to kind of put this aside for a second and say, assuming this is what the state is, that is I can use, I can look at commodity as almost a utility, what other outcomes can I, can I strive for? And when we think this way, we realize that we actually can start doing this today. We do not have to wait for an infection line to be instrumented because we already have tools to do that. We can already, extract knowledge and customer sentiment and information from social media and put it back, bring it into the broader context. So that, that's the reason why I'm thinking about connectivity as the driver for, for future uh, innovation. Thank you, Joe. Georg Kuba, join us. Thoughts on agree or disagree with what Joe said? You're up. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between two views, right? So one is um, obviously, IoT and big data is the answer to many problems. So if you, if I look at my customer base in the manufacturing industry, right, they are they are looking at their customers. They realize that customers are looking for much much more specific and personalized products. They then think about how doing that they digitalize their products so that they have configuration options and so on. And this is where the technology comes in and helps them do that. So it is a solution to a problem. On the other hand, it's also something that's ubiquitous. It's, it's just there and you have to use it, like Joe was saying. And 
So I, I think it behooves us to, to take those technologies and always think about what do we want to do with it. But on the, on the other hand, you know, even if we don't find a really good use beforehand, it's, it's not like not using them because, because they're there anyways. And the ability to be connected to all kinds of sources of information and then use that big data that amasses for intelligent decision making, I mean, that's, that's what we call the intelligent enterprise, right? That's, our, that's the, the concept and the vision that we have for every company in the world, that it is able to use those two technologies to make decisions intelligently based on real-time data that is gathered automatically. So, yeah, it's totally there. Thank you very much. Hendrik Newman at Continental, what do you think? Uh, one of my statements uh, so was that the implementation of Industry 4.0 is a tough job. And it's not enough that you only have the possibility to digitize something or that there's a system or a software from SAP or anybody else. The big point is to bring it into your production, to, to work with people uh, who may not have used a computer every day, to uh, think about your process, to improve your process uh, with possibilities of digitization. And I think this is a key figure, and this is why it's so tough to, to, to dig into this uh, topic. And uh, the second point is it's not only that you digitize the existing processes, you also need to think about how can I improve the processes which are already there for decades and uh, how I can improve them with Industry 4.0 and the po new possibilities. And that's the reason I have seen two sides. One is that you have a software which is there and the second one is how you bring it into your production, into your life. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Anybody want to comment briefly? Because I want to move on to, to a statement from Georg. Joe or, or Georg, anything you want to say back to Hendrik? You all good? Um, maybe no, a quick comment or question. I might have misunderstood some of the intent behind sentences, but I am a little bit leery about um, data that's already there and or let's digitize and see what happens. I think this has been the mindset so far. And to my mind, it's part of the, the reason why we're stuck in prototyping and proofs of concepts and let's see what happens and look at this great dashboard. I think we need to start from the other end, which I think is where Hendrik is coming from as well. Let's understand what processes need improvement and forget what is the reason for the um, failure or, or whether IoT fits the solution or not. Let's understand weaknesses and processes. So we spoke earlier about overly leaned and therefore fragile supply chains. Let's understand that and then see what tools are available to solve that. And it's okay if it's not industry 4.0 or back to Andrew's comment about the individual employees. The role of data, the role of um, tools to enhance the user experience, the, the, the role of those tools that create, curate complete context is to help any decision maker get the information the way he or she needs it and in their context. So it's really taking all this wealth of data, but curating it in a different way. So I wanna, I don't of course disagree with the entire process, of course I agree, but I wanna reverse the thinking process. Starts with the outcome, starts with the employee, starts with the process we're trying to fix and then work it backwards. And again, if it's not industry 4.0 type solution, they're just fine. I have no concern about that. Hendrik, Georg, anybody want to comment back? You go good? Yeah, okay. I'm fine. Yeah, good. Okay, good. good. Thank you, Joe. I'm going to move on to statement number two from Georg Kuba. 
And this is, uh, I think, provocative. It speaks to something in my opening, Georg. You say many companies have been trapped in POC, proof of concept purgatory. <laughs> That's a very strong term. You say Capgemini in their Mastering Smart City, Smart Factories initiative, POV, found 70% of manufacturers are investing heavily in smart factories and continue to increase their annual spend, but... Only 14% said they would characterize their smart factory deployment to date as a success. Georg, interesting statistic here. Why don't you speak to it, please? Well, I, this goes back to also what uh, Joe just said, right? We, the question is, if you just dabble in the technology and you try this and you try that, then you're not getting anywhere. And, uh, you know, Capgemini found this out in their study. There are other studies there as well, um, which just show that, um, there are so many like easy targets and you go for it quickly. You use some kind of technology, you do the POCs, but then it's hard to bring it back into the, into the core process of the enterprise. Uh, I was working with a customer in Finland some time ago and they had this nice model of speedboats, right? They said, so look at us, we're this big tanker and we're floating along the ocean and we're really hard to steer. So what we do is we have a great idea we put a speedboat out and the speedboat is agile. They can do whatever they want. They try it out if it works and many of the things works, but then you have the tanker and the speedboat and then what do you do, right? You take the speedboat back into the tanker, you lose your speedboat. It's gone. So the, 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 the way that we have to think about it is that we have to gradually transform the tanker or that we have to put out a fleet of speedboats that eventually we just act as if it was a tanker. And, and that's what's so really hard because the transformation is more than just doing it once and doing it maybe with special software, with special environments, but doing it for good and doing it uh, in a sustainable way. So this is why I believe that is the case. And this is why, why I also think you need to have an, an innovation environment because you need to be agile, you need to be flexible, you need to be able to put out speedboats, but that then ties back into your enterprise processes. If you put out something that is not compatible with your enterprise data store, process model, uh, API framework, then it's just going to be a pilot forever. And so I, I think this is something that we've seen for a while and uh, companies are realizing it and they're changing the project approach big time. Thank you. Hendrik, you're up sitting next to Georg. I'd love to get your POV on this. What do you think? I think uh, he's correct and I absolutely agree. The most difficult thing is if you have a proof of concept or a a small implementation, how to spread out in the complete company. And uh, our, or we do it with uh, templates. So we do our proof of concept, we do a template, and then we can spread it out in different areas. This is uh, one of our approaches. And what is not underestimated or what often is underestimated is um, the resource you need to spread this out. Because it's not just copy and paste on the software base, yes, but you need to change the organization, the people who work with it. And I think this should be focused on uh, because if you don't, you will only have a software, but people won't use it, for example. And that's yeah. the reason why you need to combine it. Thank you. Joe Barkai, thoughts, please. Well, I, I think we're all in agreement. In a way, I could have, in response to Georg's statistic, I would say I rest my case. It's really yet another statistic that proves the point. Um, it's a good opportunity, perhaps, to kind of look back at the history of IoT and Industry 4.0, and what kind of threw us off the target for, for at least a decade 
was this kind of interesting hobby of industry analysts counting connected devices. It was all about putting more devices, connecting devices, and, and arguing over you know, how many devices will be connected in years such and such, and how many zettabytes of data will be uh, connected. Mm -hmm. uh, for most of us, this is kind of totally irrelevant information. What is relevant is what data can be collected, whether we have it or needs to develop new tools, to improve processes. So I think we are in very much in agreement here. Good, yeah. thank you. Georg, any, oh, Hendrik, go ahead, please. Yeah, one, one point to add, perhaps, is you need to think about, for example, if you digitize your process, you bring transparency. So I agree to Joe, it's not important how many uh, tools or how many things are connected and digitized. The point is, what do you do with the outcome? What do you do with the report? What do you do with the transparency that this brings to your organization? How do you deal with it? How do you explain it to the workers? How do you explain it to management? And I think these are the big points. The outcome of the digitization, what you and, uh, do with it and how to deal with it. Mm, no, totally. I think that this, it, you know, we're, we're kind of going... I don't want to say we're going in circles, but we are reconfirming ourselves mm -hmm. constantly. It is about the outcome, and whatever you do, it needs to be sustainable and should focus on the the, the real data and not the the technology to get it. Yeah. Thank you all, uh, Hendrik. I'm looking at your statements here. I think we've covered one, two, and you just brought up three: the benefits of Industry 4.0, including transparency. I'd like to go to statement number four, Hendrik, if that's okay with you. You want to talk about leadership in Industry 4.0 projects. You say Industry 4.0 often starts as an IT project. No, no surprise there. But discovering all the new possibilities during implementation, it soon converts into a change process, a project for the entire organization. Let's talk about it from the people side. Hendrik? Yeah, yes. So I think in the beginning, uh, we had a proof of concept, just as we discussed. And then uh, we approved this proof of concept and we said, okay, yes, it's working. And then, okay, let's do this project. And down the road, we noticed, oh, this is not an IT project because I need the support from production. I need the support from engineering. Oh, this is also affecting our customers, so I need to go to sales. So at the end, uh, it's converting from a pure IT project to a change project from the complete organization, from the entire organization. So this was the first thing we had to deal with. And uh, then we thought, okay, um, this is our perspective. This is what we want to do. And then we discovered... Uh, Oh, there are disruptive technologies. What do we do now? Oh, we have now transparency and we have we can see things. And in these things we never saw when we started the project. And that's the reason why all people have to be very open-minded in this project, because it cannot be planned on a on a, on a piece of paper, you cannot plan it. Uh, you're discovering every day new new possibilities, and uh, that's why leaders or management needs to be open-minded and, and trust uh, the people on the project. And the second point is, uh, when we come to leadership, uh, you need to make very clear who's working on this project. So it is not an IT project pure. You need to get all people into this project. So uh, sales, production, quality, uh, of course IT, but it is a um, a change project and you need the, the, the commitment and the involvement of all these parties from your company to make it working. Interesting. Leadership needs to be open-minded. Mm -hmm. You said, what if they're not? Is that the demise of the company? Is that chaos? Is that people saying, wait a minute, we don't want to change or it was fine before or what do you mean this is going to be the new way of doing business? I'm not trying to instigate here. I'm just wondering. It's no, no, problem, no problem. Say they should, but go ahead. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, the first thing, if you're not open-minded and you stay as planned, you will not get a complete benefit. 
because you're not uh, developing like uh, the industry 4.0 or digitization is benefiting and you do not get all the benefits from it that's one point and at the end all need to moderate the change in the company because digitization for me is pure change for the organization okay joe barkai thoughts please well it's a very important point and i completely agree you know one one way to look at the future the way i kind of trying to understand the future is when the future of technology is to say, let's assume for a second that it's done. We fix everything, everything's connected. We have the data, we deal with security and privacy, we have the analytics, we have artificial intelligence, everything is there. So what does the world, or what is the corporate life look at that point? And then you very quickly realize that the next hurdle, and maybe bigger than anything else, is the need to change organizational processes. So it's one thing to say, well, now we have the data to help me make decisions and understand the impact on downstream. Question is, in the argument between my decision and downstream impact, who wins, if anyone? What is the process to reconcile conflicting drivers within the company? We need to change processes so downstream processes can participate in upstream decisions. And it's a little bit vague, uh, but an example might be, uh, you know, when I'm, if I'm a design engineer, I really focus on my goals and constraints. So I want to build the product for the functions I promised, maybe for the cost I promised. But I may not really care because I don't understand manufacturability. So all the nice features I built can cost me so much more during the manufacturing process or during the service process that happens in a different continent. The ability to bring data from different disciplines and different domains and harmonize them and reach life cycle or you know, lifetime decision is very, very difficult for organizations because we are not built this way. If we go back to Michael Porter's theory about value chain, we realize that the value chain theory does not support what we're trying to accomplish. Value chain theory says, okay, one, stop, one step is done, we, we move to the next one, and there's a very well-defined interface there, and we this way we kind of go down the reason why we're really slowing down and not adopting so fast. Thank you. And, and let me build on this. Let me build on this. I think this is a really, really important piece because this also touches on this concept of the digital twin, right? Because when you say we have a value chain that is not interrupted by well-defined interfaces, but rather something that's fluidly from left to right, then it's easy to understand this model of the digital representation of your product that is created in development, then augmented in manufacturing with real, with, you know, with real manufacturing parameters, and then gets. Uh, changed over time during during service, right? And it is really important that everybody is looking at the same representation uh, of that of that object, and that then drives end-to-end -end processes and end-to-end -end responsibility. Um, and to your point about you know the development engineer may do something that then the service guys really have a problem with. I vividly remember a conversation that I had with the head of service of a large company uh, up in Sweden, and and he was the head of service. And we were talking about many things and about PLM, and he got totally agitated. He says, you know, PLM is much too important to leave it to the head of engineer. Because he, he was saying, we have to deal with all this stuff coming downstream, smart design decisions that we cannot service. So I thought you're spot on there, John. Thank you very much. Hendrik, talk. Uh, just uh, jumping in on the, the data. Uh, I have an perhaps a practical example for that. In our case, we implement uh, digitization in our shop floor 
and uh, we changed something on the product and there was a barcode on it and we delivered it to our customer. And then the customer said, hey, what is about this barcode and what do we do? And we said, oh, we, do, we now collect a lot of uh, data. We don't know what we need it for, but we have now a lot of uh, production data uh, available. And then the customer said, hey, can we have it? And we said, uh, yes, we can share it. And uh, now it's like that we'll upload for each part that we produce live uh, into the cloud and our customer gives this data with additional data from his production to the final customer via telephone app. And if somebody would ask me four years ago when I started this project, this was completely out of my mind. Uh, and this is perhaps an, an example how digitization can change also your business because you cannot foresee that you will have this data until you collect it. Thank you. Good points yeah. on all of that. I'm looking at our time here. We've got about 11 minutes left. I want to sneak in another topic. Georg, I'm looking at the middle of your statement number three. You preempted me, my friend. I was going to talk about digital twin. <laughs> I, I had just highlighted it and you started talking about it. I love that. So I'm looking at the, the third paragraph in number three. That was a, a very rich paragraph. You say technology industry 4.0 can help with manufacturers changing workforce. A lot of the expertise is leaving. There will be a skill gap. And you say digitalization could be a great opportunity to capture knowledge and have it available in the future before, here's the big one, all the experts retire. And I'm going to say, OMG, <laughs> boomers are not going anywhere, Georg. <laughs> I'm trying to well, leave saying, so Georg, talk to me. How can Ford Industry 4.0 keep that expertise? Good point. Well, I, I mean, obviously, you know, there's, if, if you go to a shop floor today, and, and maybe even more if you go to a traditional shop floor today, there's a lot of very complex equipment and machinery being operated. Uh, go to any automotive factory or any, you know, complicated product factory. A lot of very complicated equipment is being operated by people who really know what they're doing. And in some cases, they know this because they've been operating this equipment for years, and they have maybe been part of the development phase, and they have made specs, and they, they just know that stuff by heart. And if they hear a wrong noise or see something that just doesn't look right, then they know how to react. And these are the people that we are going to see leaving in the next couple of years or, or 10 years maybe. So, um, you know, one of the... the first applications of this whole industry photo technology was, uh, you know, predictive maintenance, preventive maintenance, listening to equipment, sensing what's going on, and then taking actions uh, automatically, like realizing, oh, we're running into a problem here. There's a vibration that shouldn't be here. There's a noise that shouldn't be there. And, and that's, what I, that's what I think about when I say these things, because only if we're able to do this, actually the factory can be manned by just one man and a dog, because... The, the equipment is maintained automatically and is run automatically and so on. So, you know, digitalizing knowledge and automating decision-making obviously is uh, representing knowledge that today sits in the heads of people and not in the, in the processes themselves. Hendrik. Uh, I agree completely. And just to add, before you can digitize your process, you need to think about how the process is and what's in it. <laughs> And this is the knowledge. This is the knowledge in the head of the people who are going to get retired. And if you get this transformed to the digitized process, to the system, then you can keep some of the knowledge in your company. And don't think it's the process like it's written down because it's usually not. That's right. It's, it's lore. It's knowledge. It's, it's, a, it's here. It's here. Joe Barca, I'd love to get yeah, your Just a quick comment that really yeah. deserves another conversation, which so is a sidebar. But 
if and when we get to the point of a um, total lights out factory, we need to remember that we are slowly causing attrition in available jobs. So we will be in a position in 10 or 20 years where there will just not be enough jobs for people, whether it's factory job or others. So automation has a lot of benefits, and we all agree about the benefits, but we also remember the impact on society. So we will have, as, as a society, and people hope to have impact on, on decisions, we'll have to think about what we do uh, with people who have no longer ability to, uh, to find jobs. But again, it's a sidebar conversation for another, maybe another but, you know, changing the game conversation. I, I would like that. I would like that a lot. Very interesting, Joe. Not enough jobs for that would yeah. be that would be a dream for people right now. Look at the the unemployment because of COVID. Look at the changes in culture all around the world, and how will we get people back? And I love the optimism. Anybody agree with Joe's? That's not Joe's prediction. We're still going to save you. Still get sixty seconds for your official lightning round crystal ball prediction, Joe. But Georg or Hendrik, do you uh, do you find Joe's optimism uh, valid for you? Well, I'm not sure it was optimism. I'm, it was I, not. It was I, actually I You were saying we will not have enough jobs for yes. all the people. So it's actually, it's more like a dire prediction. And, oh, and I, I do took it agree. the other way. I'm sorry. No, I no, 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 no. You know, it, you know the, the, I, of course, you can make it a somewhat nice statement by saying the dumb jobs go away and the smart jobs are increasing. But I don't think we'll, we'll have as many smart jobs as the dumb jobs are, that are going away. So I think that's a problem that we have to deal with. We have to redefine the value of work mm -hmm. and, the, and the position that work has in our society. Totally with you, Joe. Well, exactly. I'll flip that around then. Then we're looking for people to do things that matter more, that use their brains more, that we will engage people at a different level in the workforce, that they will have yeah. to become smarter. We're using the the uh, concept of the DUMB jobs not as a put down of anybody, but as a way to say they're not at the level where we would like people to aspire to have using their minds, using their brains in their workforce in the future. Hendrik, quickly save me here. I think that there were always jobs you cannot optimize. You can digitize all jobs so that they interact with a computer, but there'll be a lot of jobs you cannot uh, optimize and people will be always needed in manufacturing uh, because it's too expensive uh, or um, to, 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 uh, to optimize these, these tasks or it's not technically not possible uh, because uh, special materials or I don't know. So I think those jobs will be always there. Uh, but they will work in a digitized environment. So are you taking back your, your reservation about the, the Lights Out factory? Uh, somehow, let's come to the prediction. Let's come to the prediction. No, <laughs> <Joe>, 60 <laughs> seconds. Crystal ball, what do you see in the future? Let's, let's make it optimistic. Joe Barkai, go. Uh, well, I think that we will, um, let's look at five, 10 years. I think we'll continuously to see slow progress in Industry 4.0. I don't think it will accelerate. I think it will remain slow because of many reasons we discussed today already. What we will see to compensate that is increased use of uh, data in artificial intelligence uh, in modeling and what-if scenario that we discussed. So in my opinion, the lights out factories are going to remain in the future. But at the same time, we need to um, kind of look at the lights out factories, the guiding light. I know, poor pun, but I couldn't resist it. So we need to have this vision, but I don't think we're going to get there. In five years, I think that we also, we will have gone through another crisis of trust. Uh, we went through distrust in, in data, in a way, in big data, because we failed to deliver the value. Now everybody's putting their hope in artificial intelligence. 
And I think that in the next five years, we'll be disillusioned about AI, not because technology is not powerful, not because it's not useful, but rather because we underestimate the complexity of the implementation. We underestimate the ability to safely scale AI, and we are over-optimistic, or we ignore issues around data privacy and around biases in information. So in five years, Industry 4.0 will be roughly where it is today, but will be in terms of implementation of instrumentation, uh, but we'll be much smarter using data and, and analytic tools. Uh, and we will have, again, gone through disappointment, disillusionment about artificial intelligence. Thank you, Joe. Georg, 60 seconds. All right, I'll make, I'll make it really quick. My prediction is that the, the time of dabbling is over. I think Industry 4.0 will rise from being a manufacturing project in pilot mode to become an enterprise project in delivery mode. That means end-to-end processes from sales all the way into service will be connected and it will be done on platforms that actually do scale to the enterprise level. Thank you very much. Hendrik Newman at Continental, you get the last prediction. What do you see? I think that always people will be there in manufacturing, working on shop floor, but that's only the men and the dogs. They don't have to go to the plant to see what's going on. They can see it from home. And I think it will be like a jump and run game, like Super Mario Brothers. And you can run through your production in your jump and run game. And you can see the digital twin working in the jump and run game, but it's the same speed as the machine is working in real life. And I think uh, the dog and the man, they will sit at home seeing the production working. <laughs> I love it. Man and dog, not even the factory, they're at home. And imagine <laughs> what the dog is going to say to his or her offspring. Hey, you get to sit home. You don't have to go to work in a factory anymore unless just sit here and <laughs> smile at how humans have evolved their processes. Henrik, you want to say something? Any day, anyway, the dog cannot wear the security boots, so it's not possible to take him to the plant, right? <laughs> <laughs> and what about the mask? What about the mask? Oh, yeah, so the I mask. Joe, I'm going to turn around my misstatement and say the optimism is that we will have smarter jobs for people to fulfill more cerebrally rather than just, yes, they are. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to but say at the same time, we have a huge portion of society who do not have these abilities, and they do not have the ability to kind of be retrained and re-education. Well, that's something we all need to work on. That's something yep. globally we need to work on, retraining, upskilling people to understand that it's not just a job about pushing a button. You can be more fulfilled than that. That's my optimistic message. So I'm taking that in a different spin. I want to thank Judy Cubas for helping to put this wonderful panel together. Judy at SAP sponsors the Mobility Manufacturing Show. Richard Howells, who is with us as a silent partner on the Zoom here today. Thank you, Richard, for sponsoring this wonderful series and Diane Pickett for helping set up all of these shows. Aaron Keller, my engineer extraordinaire at the Business Channel at World Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Glad you're feeling better, Aaron, and we like the voice that you have, not the one that you had from allergies. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Now, I'll tell you all that my car is getting three months to the gallon. I hope you're all doing as well on yours. That was a joke. Every, Joe, you can smile now. Okay, Joe's going to smile. Go out and be a game changer today, just like Joe Barkai, industry analyst extraordinaire, just like Georg Kuba at SAP, and just like Hendrik Newman at Continental. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Be safe, be smart, be well. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Everybody wave. Thanks again for tuning in to Changing the Game with Industry 4.0 in the Intelligent Enterprise, presented by SAP, the best-run SAP. To keep the conversation going, 
Tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.